the annual renewal notice of one of the periodicals which I subscribed to asked me to select a medical foundation uh, to which the publisher will then designate a contribution in my name. I'm asked to decide whether I want to fight heart disease or cancer or leukemia or something like that. And I'm never quite sure which box to check. I wish that one of the boxes just said sin, because that's really at the heart of it all, isn't it? That's really where disease and death has its roots. The Bible reveals that God created a perfect and flawless world, yet here we are fighting disease and death, and even a simple renewal notice for a journal will indicate that to us. We live in a world that is falling apart. God warned Adam and Eve that they should not eat the forbidden fruit in the garden and that in the day that they did, they would die. Adam ate. He disobeyed God's command. And in that moment, disease and death rooted itself in the created order and became systemic in the human race. The physical consequences of sin, disease, and death demonstrate our spiritual separation from God. That separation is also demonstrated in the fact that while humanity suffers the ravages of disease and death, we travel life's highway with the entrenched notion that somehow we do not need God. Some people are bold and defiant as they express their independence from God. It seems that far more are much more gentle about it. I really don't need God, they say. Life is not always easy, but I'm a survivor. I plow forward, and I really don't, in the end, need Jesus to cope with life. Some of these people attend church every Lord's Day. It doesn't stop them from that. There might be other reasons for attending church, but really, when it comes to the essence of what they believe, whether they articulate it or not, they say, in essence, I don't need Jesus. At the end of the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we meet two people who face disease and death and who realize that they desperately needed Jesus. And as we observe Christ's interaction with them, we are reminded that in a sin-cursed world, we all need Jesus. You need Christ, particularly if you expect to die before the end of this century. You need Him. As we come to Luke chapter 8, Jesus is still touring northern Israel, going from town to town and village to village, preaching and performing miracles to authenticate who he is. Following a day of teaching on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples make that dangerous night uh, journey across the sea, across the lake. At verse 22 of Luke chapter 8, we see the account where he stills the storm that evening showing that He is the Lord of nature, and the disciples needed Him. Safely landed then on the eastern shore of Galilee at a place we're not exactly sure where it is, but Jesus and His disciples are met by a man possessed by many demons. And with a word of command, Jesus exercises the demons and shows that He is Lord of the supernatural realm and meets there a man who desperately needed Him. 
Those who witnessed the effects of this exorcism asked Jesus to leave them alone. They don't need him around. They don't need Jesus, and they send him on. So he gets back into the boat with his disciples. They sail back across the sea and come again to the western side, and probably to Capernaum, where the base of Christ's Galilean ministry is found. Now, Jesus and the disciples have been through quite a lot in the past few days. You can imagine this day of teaching, this night at sea when they are almost drowned, this eerie event with this man possessed by the legion of demons. Now, sailing again, as they approach the shore, they say, well, friends, if anybody had an idea for a little rest today, Take a look at the shoreline. We aren't getting any sleep. There on the shoreline are masses of people, throngs, awaiting Jesus' landing at the western shore of Galilee. It will be another day of intense ministry. And as Jesus had shown himself to be Lord over nature and Lord over the supernatural realm, he will demonstrate on this day in two intertwined miracles that he is Lord over disease and death. As the man possessed of demons needed Jesus, as the disciples needed Jesus, so Jesus will interact specifically with two people who desperately need him. And he proves in the first line that he is Lord over disease. As I mentioned, these two are uh, intertwined, these two miracles, but he shows that he is Lord over disease. Beginning at verse 40 of Luke chapter 8, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. Verse 40 of Luke 8, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Jairus is the ruler of the local synagogue, is well known, he's well connected, he's highly respected leader in the community. He was a theologically grounded man entrusted with the high stewardship of managing the synagogue and what took place there. For this dignified man then to fall down at the feet of this itinerant rabbi indicates that Jairus is desperate. He kneels in utter humility before Jesus. Think of this. Much less as a synagogue ruler and much more as a daddy. In front of all of these people, He falls down before Jesus and says, I need you. My daughter is dying. Will you come to my home? At this very moment, the specter of death hovers over the bed of his daughter. At 12 years of age, she would have been considered now coming into adulthood and would have been soon perhaps to be married. But all the hopes and dreams of this distraught father hang over or hang by a thread, and the death angel is poised to cut that thread. Matthew and Mark make explicit what Luke implies, that Jairus believes Jesus can help. He can heal his daughter. And so Jairus calls Jesus to come to his home. Verse 42, the middle of the verse, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. The crowds are pressing in upon him. As one commentator brings out, Jesus is like an ambulance in a traffic jam. He can't get to Jairus' home very quickly. His progress is impeded, and here's this anxious father holding his breath, 
as Jesus tries to make his way to his home. Verse 43, and a, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Let's consider this woman for a moment before we look at her interaction with Jesus. Here she is in her difficult situation. The physical condition, very possibly, we, we don't know, obviously, with any precision, but very possibly a uterine hemorrhage to cure this constant trickle of blood. A number of worthless remedies were promoted in this day. Some horrifying drinks uh, the rabbis would, would commend to the people in their writings. Uh, there were uh, commonly prescribed uh, uh, tonics or medications that were used. So, uh, attempts to dry up this blood flow put this woman through all kinds of horror. Along with these, the rabbis also indicated they really didn't know what to do with solving this problem, and so they indicated a number of superstitious means of dealing with such difficulties. Along the more, among the more interesting, Edersheim notes that the rabbis commended superstitious practices such as carrying the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in summer and in a cotton rag in winter. You can see this woman carrying her egg around, hoping against hope that something would stop this flow of blood. And if that didn't do the trick, they got a little more interesting. They also suggested, if worse came to worse, that you find a pile of dung dropped by a white she-donkey and that you fish through it, or whatever, through it, and pull out, if you could find, a barley kernel. And if you could find that, you would hold that kernel and that would heal you. This was prescribed for this very type of malady. We wonder how in the world people could be so far off. But let's admit it, some of us have tried some things that don't make a whole lot more sense. We don't know how to fix everything. Mark adds concerning this woman, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. The flow of blood, the hemorrhage from within continued and no one could fix it. But her physical condition was only part of the problem. Her social condition would have been just as difficult. This woman's condition rendered her ritually unclean, according to Leviticus chapter 15. She could not participate in temple worship ever for 12 years. Anyone who touched her or her bed became unclean. And therefore, anyone who attended to her needs or anyone who showed her physical touch would have to go through this lengthy ritual of purification. It made social contact very difficult. The law also stipulated that in her condition she could not have sexual relations, which meant, according to the laws of the day, that she had probably been divorced if she had ever been married at all. It was a horrifying condition. Rendered her a social outcast. But like the synagogue ruler, this woman, woman too is desperate and seeks out Jesus. You see her there, shouldering her way through the crowd, we don't know if people would know of her condition by the smell or by the sight, perhaps clearing the way for her to get out of, out of her way as she makes her way to Jesus in her trauma. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. 
She believed one thing. That's all we know. She believed that Jesus had the power to heal her. Avoiding detection, she approaches him from behind and in simple faith touches his robe. And the flow of blood that had plagued her for 12 long years stopped. And Jesus stops. Verse 45, Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. I think you can see Peter trying to filter through this very strange statement. Who touched you? Everybody's saying, well, well I, I did, but I didn't. I mean, I don't know what you mean. Who touched you? And Peter tries to reason with Jesus and says, we're being pressed all over the place by this crowd. There's all kinds of people that have touched you. What do you mean, who has touched you? But verse 46, Jesus says, said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Healing power had passed through Jesus. I don't think that's power that is never to return, but he could somehow sense that this power had passed from him. Of the many who had touched him, only one had touched him in faith, and he wanted to fan that faith into flame. While most conservative commentators would differ with me on this point, I think it's very possible that Jesus really does not know who touched him. He is, in fact, fully human. And the Spirit of God can give to Jesus and choose to give from time to time omniscience, that is, all-knowing power. But I don't know that there's any indication here that Jesus is exercising that knowledge. We don't know for sure if he knows who she is and he's just trying to draw her out, or if in fact he is truly functioning as any human being would function at this place, not accessing that power to know all. He does not know specifically who touched him, and he turns around and asks the question, Who touched me? I know the power has gone from me. Verse 47, to her horror, the woman has been discovered. Then the woman, verse 47, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Jesus does not want her faith or her experience to be private. He calls upon this social outcast to declare what has happened to her and for her publicly here to declare that she is now clean. Verse 48, and he ministers to her. When he says to her daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. Reminds us of chapter 7, verse 50, as Jesus ministered to another woman. You are cleansed, go in peace. He removes all doubt as to why she was healed. She was not healed because Jesus was some sort of charged battery anybody could touch and receive some healing buzz. Jesus could heal people whether they believed in him or not, and whether or not they touched him. She was not healed because she touched Jesus. She was healed because she trusted Jesus. And he wants to make that very clear. It is your faith that has released the power of God to heal. So go in peace. Now this peace is not some subjective feeling. This peace is, not, it is rather an objective standing before God. It is not a feeling. It is a relationship. Go in peace. Go reconciled with God. You have trusted and your faith has brought you healing. The Greek word that is used here is the word saved. And I think in this context it means physical healing. 
But there is undoubtedly a higher reference, as was so often the case in Jesus' statements to those who had been healed, that there had been a reconciliation, not only physically with health, but a reconciliation with God. Go in peace. But remember this. It is your faith that has brought you health. Think in a theological, from a theological standpoint what we have seen here about Jesus. Jesus demonstrates once again that he is Lord of sickness and disease. We must get this point to which the Gospels bear witness over and over again. He is Lord over sickness and disease. And in healing after healing, we see this demonstration. Significantly here, he shows his lordship over disease by what he does not do. He does not set out to heal this woman. He does not even see her coming. He does not give her careful instruction as to what she must do to be healed, as if healing depended on some magical routine or some incantation spoken by the great healer at just the right time or some trick that is being done, some superstitious ritual. The power of God, it is made clear in this unique healing event, inheres in Jesus. It resides in Him. It's not a scheme that He fulfills with people, but it's something that dwells within Him. The power of God is inherent in Jesus. So in an instant of time, without seeing her, talking to her, or touching her, Jesus heals this sick woman. I think it's fair to go a little farther than just to say what this teaches about healing. I think it is fair for us to say on the basis of this text, as Jesus deals with her, that no one ever sneaks up on Jesus. I think we could say that in a broader sense than just the healing area, but with the very healing of sin itself, no one ever sneaks up on Jesus, and you know what? No one ever has to. He bids you come to Him. He wants you to come, and He wants to heal. Jesus never casts out those who come to Him, John 6, 37. But we do need to come to Him. And when we do, He does not humiliate us or criticize the way that we come. But having come, we cannot hide our faith. We must declare it, and if it is real, we will declare it. We see demonstrated in the experience of this liberated woman that those who own their need of Jesus go away cured and filled with joy. Now we have to be cautious here. I don't think that the cure is always physical. Jesus does not always will to give physical health to everyone. And that is clearly demonstrated in the Word of God. But we're talking here, not getting narrowed down to just physical healing, but to look at the greater relationship that we have with God, which may in fact include physical healing from time to time, but we don't insist on that as if that's the end. There's something much more important as Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness and disease, and that is that he calls us to himself. He bids us to come, and when we come, he deals with the need whatever it is. Sometimes it's physical healing. Sometimes it is, as in Paul's case, the ability to handle the healing over the long haul, or the sickness over the long haul, to endure the trial. But whatever he gives us, 
is a healing touch, and he bids us come, and he calls us to himself. You don't have to sneak up on Jesus. You can come to him in confidence that he will, re- will receive you. He is Lord over disease and sickness and all that attends it. He is Lord over death, we learn, in beginning in verse 49, we see demonstrated again, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Death had severed that thin cord on which her life had been hanging. She was gone. Back at Jairus' home, as we know the customs of the day, in keeping with those ancient Israeli customs, a loud wail arose from the girl's bedside. Probably her mother, who does not appear to be with her husband here before Jesus, raising up this loud cry, and that cry would have been carried throughout the village as the announcement was made that the girl was gone. Spreading to surrounding homes, the wails and the mourners begin to gather, beating their chests, tearing their clothes, throwing dust on their heads. There would be those uh, professional mourners who would perhaps already have been secured for this pending funeral. The flautists gathered to create an atmosphere of grief with their eerie music. All of this had already begun, and a messenger is dispatched to bear the terrible news to the father. She's gone. Don't bother the teacher any longer. We don't know how much faith and what this, this man has and what he knows about Jesus, but he's undoubtedly frustrated by the slow progress being made through the crowds, and now with God, Jesus taking time here to speak to this woman, he's probably frustrated by it all and very much troubled. And Jesus speaks to him in his need. Verse 50, hearing this, That is probably the sense of overhearing the conversation as he's talking to this woman, still ministering to her. He overhears this messenger say, your daughter is dead. Hearing this, Jesus said, verse 50, to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Place your confidence in me. And Jairus leads the way to his house in simple faith. He has nothing to lose, nor does anyone who ever trusts Jesus have anything to lose. He goes with Jesus, verse 51, and when they arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Putting this together with the other gospel accounts, it is clear that Jesus really boots these people right out of the house. They are here at a funeral. They are mourning. And Jesus is saying, this funeral is just about to be transformed into a resurrection party. Your services are no longer needed. And he gets them all out of the house and is just there with these few. First time that James and John and Peter are singled out among the disciples as the inner circle, and they are brought in to probably witness this healing. The father and mother also invited to attend Jesus. But notice how he speaks then to those who are mourning. Verse 52, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Luke kind of tends to go back here in time and just look at the picture from the beginning. All the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. Now we've got to think about that for a minute. What is Jesus saying? Stop wailing. She is not dead. She is asleep. Instantly, you notice the mourners transform into mockers. 
They laughed at him, verse 53, knowing that she was dead. They turn off the tears long enough to laugh. They know she's dead, and so does Jesus. I think he speaks here of death as sleep for a very specific reason. First of all, in order to arrest their attention, to wake them up, to think about this. She's asleep. No, she's not asleep. She's dead. You're, you're a fool. This girl's gone. We know she's gone. What does that do? By calling death sleep here, Jesus conveys that the girl's journey into the realm of death will last only as long as a nap. He is about to wake her up. And you know what interestingly he does here? By eliciting their scorn, by getting them to be critical of what he has just said, Jesus skillfully turns these mourners into what? Into witnesses. You see, they've gone on record publicly to say, she's dead, you're a fool to think she's asleep. I think he's speaking of the sleep of death, knowing that he is fooling them, to think that he's talking about actual sleep. But by doing so, they know she's dead. And they have to admit it. Now he proceeds. Verse 54, he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. So here he is in this room with his three disciples, the mother and father, takes this young girl by the hand and lifts her up. The original language put together with the Aramaic from Mark and the Greek from here, we might put it into our language something like, wake up, sweetheart. It's a very tender phrase as he takes her hand and just comforts her as a little girl, like you might wake up a girl as she's coming out of sleep. Wake up, sweetheart. These gentle words, Jesus commands death to give up its latest victim, and death yields. Verse 55, her spirit returned, and at once she stood up, and Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her spirit returned. Death is not cessation of existence. Death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Her body was dead in that the spirit had separated from it, but the spirit now returns. The text does not tell us where the spirit was, does not tell us all of the details that we might like to know. What it is seeking to do is not to talk to us about this, but to talk to us about Jesus. With a simple, kind word to a young lady, he shows that he has power over the grave. Arise, and she arises. She stands and walks there. There is her mother and father blinking in amazement. Their hearts, not so long ago filled with anguish, are now filled with astonishment, and soon, I am sure, would be filled with ecstatic joy as this funeral turns into a celebration of life. Their daughter is restored. And wouldn't you like Jesus to be your doctor? Give her something to eat. <laughs> no no uh, need to... Go with jello and water for three days. Just give her some food. She, what's the point? She is fully healed. Give her some food. Perhaps been several days of illness or some time of illness and she uh, may not have eaten for some time. In sensitivity to her, he commands the people who probably aren't able to even think to go get her some food and ministers to her physically. 56, her parents astonished, were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now what's going on there? 
Don't tell anybody what's going on. The people at this erstwhile funeral would obviously realize that the girl had been raised from the dead. It's not that Jesus is saying nobody can know about this. It's going to be so blatantly obvious in this community. And Matthew tells us, in fact, that the, the message spread far and wide. You can imagine. But Jesus apparently issues this unusual command in an attempt to minimize crowd reaction. What did he see as he came to the shore that day? As he landed his boat with the disciples on the shore of Galilee, he saw a throng of people waiting for him. His popularity is outstripping the response of people to his message. They are quite thrilled with the miracles and even with the great words that he speaks. But this enthusiasm is outstripping their acceptance of who he is and of his teaching. Things are beginning to change. The people have heard the message. They have seen. It has been demonstrated. There is unimpeachable evidence now, solidly established in all of the region of Galilee, that Jesus can raise the dead and heal the sick. He is God, we would say. They're coming to understand that point, but what they do not see is that his teaching must be accepted. That they must receive not only what he can do, but who he is. Things are beginning to change. Don't tell anyone about this miracle. We're entering into the silent part of the book of Luke, into chapter 9, where you don't see anything mentioned about the crowds. They're still there, but Luke doesn't say much about it. Because we're now coming to the time where he needs to begin to present more and more what he believes and what you must believe to follow him. But at this point, the crowds are there and the instruction is to keep this matter as quiet as possible. So we have seen at this point in our journey through this eighth chapter four miracles. Verse 22 and following, his power over the natural realm. Verse 26 and following over the demonic realm. Verse 40 and following over disease and sickness. And now in verses 49 through 56, his power over death. This is what we must see again. Jesus is, is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We do not make him Lord. He is Lord. Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of the earth and the sea. Lord of life and Lord over death. These four miracles demonstrate who he is. He is the Lord. We started our song service this morning, our singing together with that statement. He is the Lord. And we mean this in the sense that He reigns over death and He reigns over all things, as has been demonstrated in these miracles. And we say in response to this, let me draw out three ideas. First of all, I hope it is clear, as I've tried to make clear, and I hope that it's clear to you, that you need Jesus. You need Him. There may be some here who are really having a hard time being convinced of that. I don't know that I really do need Him. I can cope without Jesus. I don't mind coming to church. You're here. I don't mind singing. I don't mind reading the Bible. I don't really need Him. I can cope without Him. No, you can't. You need Him. The only issue is when you're going to realize it and face reality. And let's do that for a moment here today. Let's face the music, as they say. You are dying. 
Some of us are still growing, but we're one day closer to the grave than yesterday. We are all dying. Sickness and disease is nipping at the edges of our existence. You may feel okay at the moment, but you're dying. And in the end, there is no medication or medical procedure that can stave off the inevitable. We might smirk, laugh at those who are digging through a pile of dung for a kernel of seed, a grain, to hold around superstitiously to beat off death. But it's really no different with our medications. They may, in fact, work for us for a while, but we cannot beat death. That's reality. You will die. You need a greater power than yourself. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, I think there are physical ramifications to what we see in Jesus' power over sickness and disease. We know in this world that it is right to pray that God would heal, but it is also wrong to insist that He heal. It is wrong for us to tell God what He will do. We can pray that He will heal. We can pray that He will give life. We can pray that He will extend life, but we don't tell Him what to do. We submit to His leading and to His will. And as we do so, we need have no fear he has this figured out. He's bigger than we are. He is the Lord over disease and sickness and death. We have nothing to fear. And as we battle sin, as we battle disease, as we battle sickness, and some of us more than others, I think it would be right for us to consider here James chapter 5 as we are called to call upon the elders of the church when we fall into sickness that incapacitates us. Why is that? That is an instruction given to us by the Apostle James because we need to understand that every battle with disease is a battle for, with, for which we need Jesus. We need God's strength and help. We need to realize that sickness is not simply a matter of not having the right doctor or the right medication. Sickness is a battle with death, and it's a battle we're going to lose. But it's a battle Jesus defeated it's an enemy that he defeated. It's a battle that he ultimately won. And so we should view sickness as a spiritual battle. You need him. You need him in the battle of disease. You need him as you approach death. You need Jesus Christ. We all do. As we consider the fact that we need him, what a wonderful truth to add to this secondly that he gives freely. He gives freely. In this passage, Jesus healed an older woman. He healed, healed a young woman. He ministered to a woman, a social outcast. He ministered to a well-connected community leader. He ministered to the man who came publicly and boldly. He ministered to the woman who came quietly and shamefacedly, who tried to sneak up on him and didn't want any attention. And he will meet you in your need. But you have to come. He will give you strength. He will measure out the necessary humility. But you will have to come. You will need to come to Him as He draws you to Himself. You need Him. He will give freely. Thirdly, 
as we come, we must trust Him. Faith is the issue here. And what joy can be in our heart as we consider this passage to remember that death is not final. If Jesus did not defeat the grave, then there is no reason for us to be gathered here today. We might as well be enjoying anything we can get out of life for the moment. Because death is the victor. But death is not the victor. Jesus defeated death. The buck does not stop at death. It stops at God. And that means that as those who are one with Jesus Christ and His resurrection power, it means that when we die, we merely sleep. For some, the nap's going to be a lot longer than others, but we all just sleep. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you'd turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. In death... We sleep. There is an awakening that will take place for those in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. You see how the biblical author puts it? Just sleeping. For those who fall asleep. He's talking about death. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died. And we believe that Jesus rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we, are still, we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's what we've done this day as we have sung. We have come to encourage one another with these words that death is not final. God is final. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 10. He adds, Paul adds to this point. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Death is not final. Death is not Lord. What is final, what we face at the end of death, is God. And so Paul writes to Timothy in the second epistle, Jesus destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Is this the Jesus that you know? If you see Him for who He is, you will realize that this is the Jesus that you must have. Is this the Jesus you're trusting for life? 
Is this the Jesus you're trusting for death? Is this the Jesus that you are trusting for life after death? You need Him. He will give freely. You must trust Him as the victor over sin and death. As the victor over your sin and over your death. Cling to Him and He will give you the healing of sin that will bring the healing over disease and in the end, the victory over death for you. Let's bow for prayer and give thanks. We are awed, Father, to consider again that these things really happened. The disciples are writing with fervor and with passion Decades after these events, putting their name and their reputation and their future on the line to say, we saw it happen. And there was no one who attended these events that ever spoke up and said, no, it didn't. Jesus did raise the dead. And we thank you, God, for your word and how in his ministry he slowly and gently brought us to this realization that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Not blinding us by the light, but slowly and patiently bringing people out of disease and death and demonic possession and natural disaster to show us that he is, in fact, God. And I pray that we would realize here that the God whom we need is Jesus. That they are one as Father and Son. That the Son ministering through the Spirit, the power of God to His people. I pray, God, that each of us would leave here saying, I need Jesus. I have come to Him in faith. He has not cast me out. But humbled before Him, I have received His rescue and His salvation and His healing over death and sin. I pray that that would be the experience of each one of us as we close out this time together. And that we would sing with all of our heart to the glory of Your great name, that Jesus is Lord. Through His name I pray. Amen.